0: You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. We're going to be reading Mark chapter 4, and it's a story that actually occurs in another story. And it seems like just a passing story, in a sense, of a healing that Jesus does. But I think there's some really main points to it. In the Gospel of Mark, It's recorded, and then also in Matthew and Luke. But Mark's version is the one we're going to look at today. And it's really a story of disconnection and how does one connect. And what we're going to find out is that faith is what connects you to Jesus. So let's read that story in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, starting at verse 24. but the woman, knowing that she had, what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So from this text, we're going to look at three points about how Shame feels like that disconnection, that not being wanted, that isolation, and all that cascades with that. And we're going to be studying these three points. Yeah, we're back to three points, people. The last two weeks were only two, but this one's three. And these are the points, desperation, invitation, and substitution. First of all, desperation. I don't know if you heard in this text but it is there. This woman is desperate. She is in a male-dominated society of the first century, and she faces the stigma of having this bleeding disease continually, yeah, menstruating for 12 years. I cannot imagine for a lot of reasons. Um, Nadia boltz Weber has stated that she had her period then, in other words, for 3, 4,383 days consecutively. Now, that itself would cause such weakness because of the loss of blood. But also, um, this was in the first century. There are no feminine hygiene products of any type. And women, according to the the book of Leviticus, any time there was bleeding of any type within society, you were isolated and set apart so that you could not have human contact with others. Otherwise, you made them unclean. So you could not worship. You could not be involved in anything. For 12 years, she was not physically close to anyone, and everyone avoided her. Have you ever felt, um, when people are avoiding you, what it feels like? Or looking at you, you know, like that stare? Um, maybe. Um, I have done this once in a while, but very infrequently do I feel this way. We were in um, Los Angeles, and my uh, kids, when we were on a vacation, we, they wanted to go to Rodeo Drive. Any of you have ever been to Rodeo Drive? Uh, well, it's pretty high-end stuff, right? And so there you are in front of like Cartier or Gucci, And you just about are going to walk in, and then you go like, yeah, no, I don't belong here. You know that feeling? That's the feeling of I don't I'm not connected to this. She felt that about her whole society, all the time, everywhere, for that long. And Mark is careful. It's amazing in Mark's gospel here that he even goes into all these details. But in this little story within the larger story of the uh, raising of Jairus uh, from the dead, the Jairus's daughter from the dead, here's this little insertion, and yet. He goes into details about it. It's not just another healing. He's very careful to say she did not experience just the shame of the disconnection from her bleeding disease. She also experienced the shame from the fact that her cures were so difficult. He states that she suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but even grew worse. Can you imagine? The cure in the first century for an ailment like this was kind of awful, Okay, at least what they thought was a cure. It was primitive at best. In the first century, medicine, not so great, right? We didn't understand all of this. In the Mishnah, for example, which is kind of a rabbinical um, explanation of what to do in certain circumstances, in the Mishnah, you were supposed to, as one cure, was to take a goblet of wine. Fill it with pulverized rubber, alum, and garden crocuses. Mix all that together and drink it down, and that's supposed to cure this. She she tried this many times, and it didn't help. It actually got worse. And you can imagine why, right? So now she's desperate. She is desperate. She has decided she can't help herself. The doctors can't help her. No one can help her. You see, deep down inside of all of us, I think we have that feeling. It may not be this sickness, but we have this feeling of disconnection, of isolation. Um, We're seeking a cure often for our loneliness, or our shame, or our emptiness today. And I think just as in that first century there was a primitive understanding of medicine, (laughs) in our materialistic and progressive ways in our society today, we're still primitive in understanding what we need for our souls, for our lives, what life is really all about. We think um, to fill this emptiness inside, all I need is more stuff, more entertainment, more money will do it, more technology. It's not going to save you. It's not going to fill it. It doesn't fill it ever. I don't think it's any better than the concoction of pulverized rubber, alum, and garden crocuses for your life. Don't you? You think that's any better? Look at all the ways people are trying to cover their shame, trying to handle the feelings of disconnection. This woman through all the false cures, faced a deep shame over the fact that she could not fix this. And she has tried everything. She is not coming to Jesus to just, you know, try to see if he can aid her in figuring it out. She's coming to Jesus with nothing. She is desperately empty. And there's something to be said for that. I think Mark is putting all of these details in the story because that's the human condition. Until I realize that I cannot help myself, until I realize how I need something that I cannot fix, that I cannot make it, I am not ready really to come to Jesus. The, only, the real reason people don't find Jesus this day is not because they don't have enough faith. It's because they have way too much pride. They have too much faith in themselves and their ability to do things, and they just are looking to God to kind of aid them once in a while in a little, you know, a little addition to what they already have. And then I, it doesn't work. That's not what faith is. In this story, what's amazing about this story is the fact that faith is admitting you have nothing. You're empty. It's really your inability. It's the beggar who has nothing that's going to receive from God. Faith isn't really... Like, oh, I've got to conjure up enough faith. I've got to figure out how to believe and figure all these things out, and then I can approach Jesus. That doesn't work that way. You come to Jesus only because you need him. You have nothing to hold on to. Now, I know this is really offensive, especially... In our culture here in the United States, where we value independence and can-do spirit and initiative and self-direction and self-help and self-this and self-that, we are so full of ourselves. But the reality is still, no matter what culture, what background you have, from the richest to the poorest, from the healthiest to the sickest, from the greatest to the least, from the smartest to the people without, whatever it is, no one comes to Jesus with anything. We all equally need, just like this woman needed, whether we realize it or not. No one saves themselves. No one helps Jesus save them. <laughs> you know, uh, it's not like a halfway point. We, all we need is to reach out to Jesus and have nothing to offer Him and be connected to him. You see, um, and this is what's amazing that day, is this crowd is huge. This crowd is so packed in, she can hardly get there from what we can tell in this passage. Everybody is heading with Jesus to Jairus' house because he was so popular, he was a synagogue ruler, everybody loved him, to see what Jesus was going to do. And there were hundreds of people touching Jesus that day, but only one who connected with him. And that connection is called faith. And that connection was based on just trusting Him to do what she could not do for herself. I don't know if you've thought this through. Okay, so you've got a crowd a lot bigger than this morning right now around Jesus. She feels so ashamed of the condition that there was nothing that she had done to deserve this from what we could tell. It was just what she had in life, right? This is what shame is like. It it just made her feel awful about herself, inadequate, nobody, nothing. So why in the world would Jesus call her out in front of a crowd? Wouldn't that just humiliate her even more? Why is it, couldn't she have just walked away after having been healed and keep it to herself and feel good about herself? Why is it that he does this? Now, maybe you've already seen this, but I think it's worth seeing again. Uh, The series The Chosen has this beautiful scene of this woman and the healing of her bleeding condition in it. Now, I've edited it down. Because it's about seven or eight minutes long in The Chosen, and it's really worth seeing the entire episode. But we're gonna just watch about a four minute clip of why Jesus calls her out in front of the crowd. And then I think you'll understand it wasn't humiliation, it was an invitation. I asked the question, who touched me? Master, the crowds are pressing in all around you like this and you're asking who touched you? They all have. Someone touched me. I felt that power went out of me. Never touched me. Come forward, teacher. <laughs> it was me. Just the fringe of your garment, only the edge. I promise, you are not unclean. Why my garment? I'm sorry. I, I know I should have asked, but if if you touched me, it would make you ritually unclean according to the law. I, I was sick. I was sick for twelve years. I bled and and no one could stop it. But but I believed if I could just touch a piece of your garment. (laughs) And I was right. I was right. Thank you. My daughter. I'm no one's daughter anymore. Look up. Yes, you are. Daughter. It wasn't my piece of clothing that healed you. But it was instant. I felt it right away. I know, but it wasn't this. It was your faith. Teacher, she was bleeding so long, we can take her. She is clean. Huh? You have blessed me today. And I know. My daughter, I know it has been a fight for you for so long. You must be exhausted. exhausted. Go now in peace. Your faith has made you well. I'm so glad that we found each other. Sometimes I think to overcome shame, well not sometimes, I think it's true, you don't need just words. You need the actions. You need someone to be able to accept and welcome you, to bring you to himself. Jesus wanted more for her than she even realized that day. He wanted more than she was asking for. He wanted not to just physically heal her. He wanted to connect her to himself and to the community, to give her her dignity back. Lewis Meads has written a great book, by the way. It's called uh, Grace and Shame. <clears throat> and. Um, In it, he admits that he has himself struggled with it. One of the reasons he wrote that book was because of the shame that he has experienced. He knows Christian churches tend to do really well with the idea of guilt and forgiveness. But when it comes to shame, he says, which is what this story is really about, we don't know how to deal with that as well. He writes in his book, about himself, What I needed more than pardon was a sense that God accepted me, owned me, held me, affirmed me, and would never let go of me. Isn't that what we all need? And isn't that what Jesus offers in this text? That's what this woman needed. He didn't single her out because she needed to get a scolding or be taught anything. He needed to single her out to lift her up, to honor her, to cherish her to clarify what had happened. She seemed to have kind of a quasi-magical understanding somehow. If I just touch his garment, that'll do it. And Jesus wanted to make sure that she understood it's the faith connection that matters. Just trust me. That's what does it. Trust me, and I do it. Honestly, it's not the strength of your faith that saves you or gives anything to you. It's the object of that faith. It's what you're holding on to. It's Jesus. Jesus says, you know, elsewhere that only a grain, you know, faith the size of a mustard seed, that's about as small as you can get. That's all. That's all that's needed. It's not about faith itself. Faith is not faith in faith. Faith is not, it's not something I have to look at. Faith is reaching out beyond myself. Faith is always looking to its object, which is Jesus Christ. So you, you aren't even saved by faith by faith. You're saved through faith by Jesus. It's the connection. Why was she healed? Basically, because she came to Jesus with nothing. But she came. Werner Mishke writes about this story in his book, The Global Gospel. Jesus violated the purity code. Yeah, he did. He basically did that numerous times just to make connections with people. And when he was touched by this perpetually unclean woman, he retained his holiness and purity while she was made clean. Jesus eliminated her shame by cleansing her, thus restoring her to her community. He then further raised her honor status, saying, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Calling her daughter made her part of a kinship group and constituted a rise in her honor status. Jesus removes her shame and gives her honor. You know, just as you can't really heal yourself from something like this, I believe the story is also saying you can't unshame yourself. You know, I can have all the healthy self talk, you know, and I remember (laughs) an old Saturday Night Live skit. I can't remember the guy's name. It was, I'm worthy, I'm good enough, I'm, you know, all that type of stuff. You're always talking to yourself but you don't believe it. If you're in in the middle of shame, you question and you doubt yourself so much, you're not gonna believe your, you need someone who has greater honor and status and glory than you to speak into your life. And that's what Jesus does here. She doesn't believe her own self-worth. She's not gonna believe her own talk. But she has now the Lord's word on the fact that she is a daughter. She is connected. Now, there's something very unique in this story, too. It's the only place in the gospel this happens. And it's amazing that Mark brings this up. And that is in Mark 5, verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? What's that about? our third point, substitution. Here it seems that in this story, at least this one, Jesus loses some power, which is kind of an amazing, huh, what, in order for her to be strengthened, in order for her to be. I don't think this is a throwaway comment that Mark has here. In fact, like I said before, what's amazing about this story in Mark is how long it is. Usually he's the shortest, most concise, keeps almost all the details out, and yet he adds this in. And I think he does, because this is where the whole gospel is going, the whole story. The 15 chapters of Mark are heading right to this point. I don't know if you realize that one-third of the gospel of Mark is just the one week of Jesus' life from when he enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to when he dies, is buried, and raised again. And this story is basically a foreshadowing of what's going to happen there. For her to become strong, he will become weak. God chooses to become weak in order to strengthen you. That's the whole gospel direction. Um, Maybe some of you have read this. Walter Wangren He was a pastor and an author. He died a few years of cancer. He wrote a book called The Ragman and Other Cries of Faith. And in it, The Ragman, it's a wonderful little allegorical story. It's about how this person in in a city would be selling rags. I guess this usually, it did happen at some times, where rags were sold, uh, new rags for old. He would trade them. In this story, instead of sell them. And in it, what was odd about this story is like he came up to a crying woman who was hunched on the porch in front of her uh, brownstone house crying, and he said, I'll trade that handkerchief for a new cloth. And when he takes the handkerchief, this is an allegory, she stops crying, she beholds the new cloth, but then he starts to weep. And then the ragman goes on and finds somebody else who um, I recall in this story, who had one arm missing and was unemployed and didn't have anything to do in life. He goes, I'll take that jacket and give you mine. He takes his jacket off, takes his. And what's amazing is the arm went with the jacket. So the man was healed. And after many of these different uh, occasions where, in this story, this ragman keeps exchanging the sorrow, the shame, the hurt, the disease of different people, he hobbles outside of the city to the city dump on which he dies. And he's glorious resurrected. And at the end of the story, um, Walter Wangren says, and then he looked at me and said, clothe me. I will clothe you, the radiant Christ. And that's how the story ends. I think that's exactly what is happening in this story. He is clothing her. her. He's honoring her. He's covering her. And in order to do that, he takes on the shame and the pain and the agony of this whole world. Roberta Bondi uh, writes... um, These words of what she believes Jesus would say to all of us about our own shame. She writes, it is your suffering shame that consumes you with anger. I don't know if you realize that, a lot of anger in this world is a cover for shame. Doesn't work. That renders you passive. That's another way shame affects people. Just resigned to the way it is. That swallows you in depression that keeps you from loving and knowing yourself to be loved. Shame causes even more disconnection. I hate the shame that binds you and destroys you, Jesus says, and I will prove it to you and to the world by casting my lot with you even so far as to die a death that the world finds shameful. This is what I, Jesus, as the human being in the image of God and as God's own self, choose with great joy. We receive his honor. He takes our shame. We receive his status. He takes our place. We are the object of his joy. We are the apple of his eye. We are the one that Jesus looks at and smiles upon and rejoices in, and he calls us his daughters, his sons. John Forrester writes this in his book on shame. Uncontrolled exposure of the body and soul is the fuel of shame. Jesus was publicly stripped of friends, freedom, dignity, clothing, light, life, and even his Father's acceptance, can there have been any deeper exposure?" So he knows your shame because he has actually experienced it himself and taken it on himself upon the cross so that he knows you, even in the deep depths of Any feelings that you have ever had that you don't want, he understands, he lifts your head, he shines his faith on you, and through his glorious resurrection, Jesus now defines honor and shame differently than the world does. It's in the cross of Jesus Christ where we see the weakness of God becomes the power of God for salvation. So the world believes that there's only so much honor and prestige to go around. Have you ever noticed that? You give it to somebody else, it takes away from you. And we're always fighting for it. And the people in this world who seem to have the most honor and prestige or glory are the ones who understand how to compete for it and also to push people down in order to get it. But in God's kingdom, Jesus says a woman like this, who's desperate and needy, who's poor in spirit, she's the one who gets glory. And not only that, there's more than enough honor and glory to go around for all of us. There isn't a limit on it. In God's kingdom, he pours out all of his glory and honor for you. He empties himself of everything to have you. And so we can turn around now and show honor and glory to those who never have had it. Uh, We can become those lowly foot washers as Jesus washed feet so we can too. Whatever that means. Serving the least and the last and the unlikely. (laughs) And yet, that's the most glorious position to be. Jesus says, when the first are last and the last are first. Right? That's where the honor is. We rejoice. We can rejoice with those who rejoice. We can weep with those who weep. We can show honor with all those. And that's the point. Today, I want you to remember the three points, desperation, invitation, and substitution. But there's a fourth that I could have made a four-point sermon. I could have. I could have added a fourth because this is something you will experience one day when Jesus returns in glory. You will be glorified, and that is your glorification. You will see your honor. You will see how blessed you are. You will hear, blessed are you, welcome into the kingdom. You will see God smiling on you in the face of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you this day for um, just this amazing sidelight, in a sense, but really the center of so much of what you did, Lord, for this woman and that you would do it for all of us, that you would lift us to a position of honor that we could not honor ourselves, we cannot fight for, we can't, it's something that is a free gift by your grace, Lord, and we thank you for it. I lift up all those who, Lord, are facing uh, feelings of unworthiness and disconnection, Lord, and isolation. I pray that we at Thrive could become a family in such a way where everyone knows that they belong here, regardless, and can be lifted up and that you, Lord, can shine your face on them through us. Lord, we lift up to you uh, those who are sick. We lift up the praise, uh, the worship team, Lord, and everyone in the band who is sick this day. We pray your healing upon them and that you'd bless them and bless the uh, worship night at FGCU this Thursday. We pray that you would be glorified in it and that you would lift the shame up off of every student who is there, as well as, Lord, use them for the sake of your kingdom that you might bring about uh, uh, just a Jesus revolution on that campus, Lord God, that you would do something exceeding and abundantly beyond all we can ask or imagine that night and forward. Uh, We lift up to you as well, Lord Otto, as he will be undergoing a procedure this week, and Dan as he is recovering from surgery at home with Erica. We pray, Lord, that you would bless them and keep them in your care. We offer up, oh Lord, our food drive that we're going to have, uh, that we are in the middle of right now. And I pray that you'd be working in that drive, Lord, for your glory's sake for so many in our community who are hurting and in need. Lord, we ask that not just food be given, but honor and dignity, Lord, and that they know that um, they are those whom you value, Lord Jesus. Value with an everlasting love. Value because you poured out everything, not with gold or silver, but with your precious blood, Jesus, you have paid the price to have us as your very own. Lord, you know um, the situations in our life. You know who um, may have been touched by this message, by that video, Lord, today. How so often we feel less than, and you, but you want us to know that we are yours, that we are worthy, that we are sons and daughters of the Most High. Truly, Lord, move in us that message, not to elevate us in a sense of pride, actually, but to fill us with joy and humility at the same time, Lord, and to offer it to others. Bless us, Lord, as we now will um, give our tithes and offerings. We thank you for so many who have been responsive to the needs as of late. We pray that you would be glorified in this ministry. And, Lord, prepare us uh, as we will come to the Lord's Supper this day. You honor us, Lord. We are not worthy. Uh, just like this woman, there is, there is, we are not worthy to even touch the fringe of your garment. But you call us, you invite us, you give us yourself. You want to commune with us, Lord Jesus. You want us to be filled with your Spirit and with your, you, Lord. Increase our faith and trust in you. That we look away from ourselves and to you alone. So bless us, Lord. Forgive us, Lord, for all the things that would make us unworthy. Forgive us, Lord, for the sins that we have done and for the deeds that we have not done, Lord. Forgive us, Lord, for um, not trusting you. Um, and create in us clean hearts, O oh God. Renew right spirits within us that we may be in your presence forevermore. All this we lift up to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.